Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Activate program. More than our share of the nattering nabobs of negativism. Well, I'm not a crook. I'll never tell a lie. But I am not a bully. I'm the king of the world! Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. I'm James Lilacs, and our guests, Annika Rothstein reporting from Sweden, Peter Berkowitz on Burma, plus your testimonials on the glories of Ricochet. Let's have ourselves a podcast. There you go again. Welcome, everybody, to the Ricochet Podcast, number 226. It's brought to you by Harry's Shave. Mm, that's right, for the finest shave at the very best price. Go to harrys.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET at your checkout. It's also brought to you by Encounter Books. For 15% off any title, go to encounterbooks.com and use the coupon code altogether now. Ricochet, that's right, at checkout. This week's featured title is Making David into Goliath, How the World Turned Against Israel by Joshua Moravchik. And usually at this point we have Rob Chandler's years of experience yeah. of trying to pitch a sitcom to a stony-faced <laughs> executive. Uh, and here Rob actually has somebody to hand it off to. Yes, Rob, as I yeah. promised last week, I know. Listen, there are tens and tens and tens of thousands of listeners, almost a quarter of a million uh, across all of our podcast listeners to the Ricochet podcast. We don't have that many members. I've been making my desperate pitch all the way through 228 uh, podcasts to try to get people to become members. It's been moderately successful, but we decided instead this time, well – why not leave it to the experts? This week's member pitch is from Richard O'Shea in Baltimore, Maryland. Take it away, Richard. This is Richard O'Shea from Baltimore, and it's my turn this week to give you the hard sell as to why you should part with 40 of your hard-earned dollars to become a Calvin Coolidge-level member of Ricochet. I've been a member since this thing started, and it's a little weird to pay for anything on the Internet, but Ricochet <laughs> is unique. Free home feed that you read anyway is just the tip of the iceberg. And while many of the conversations are political, I get a kick out of the ones that are about religion, science, music, history, and for whatever weird reason, about giraffes. And any time I need reminded about what my $40 buys, I just scroll down and read any of the nasty comments at the bottom of any random page on the Internet. And He's you have the opportunity to attend member meetups. I've been with to three, uh, one with Rob here in Baltimore. And I found out I'm not the only Republican in Maryland after all. 
Finally, don't be a cheapskate. You're going to drop 40 bucks this week on a dinner anyway. Use it instead to support Ricochet for an entire year. Now back to the three amigos. What I love about that is that we're actually expecting people to believe that a site called Ricochet has an actual member giving a testimonial, and his name is Rick O'Shea. Oh, that's true. It's not funny. Yeah, that, I didn't even I didn't even uh, notice. Isn't that, that a peculiar it, coincidence? <laughs> but it, listen, if I had made it up, I would have done a better job. Uh-huh. Uh, no, that's, that, that, we that's got. Great... I should say we got a lot of great calls. Uh, we will continue to the, the the phone line is open. I will post the number again on the member feed. Um, if you've uh, been hesitating to call, please do. We got some very, very we got a great one from China, but it kept the audio kept dropping out. So we're going to try to re-record it. Uh, we got some very very funny ones. We're going to play a funny one at the end too. Um, uh, it was really gratifying. And um, if you're listening and you're not a member, um, follow the orders of uh, member Richard O'Shea. Uh, and I want to say a special thanks to our newest Thatcher member John Russell, Russell and new Reagan members Ed Sullivan and Chris Harper. Thank you for joining Ricochet.com. And if you're listening and you want to join, just go to Ricochet.com and join today. Because otherwise, this entire enterprise founders, and we can't have that happen. We need you <laughs> to pay us money. We need you to write the content. We need you to cut the spots. And eventually, we're going to want you to print it out and hand deliver it to other people in the, in the nation. We're all in this together. Uh, no, just kidding. We don't, uh, we don't have no intention of doing that. What we do want, however, is to hear what Peter is doing, whether or not he's sitting back wincing at how crass commercialism has, has corrupted uh, you know, his, his child here. Peter, is, is, are you okay? I just, I'm, I'm all right. Some, I'm all okay. right. No, I actually – I loved hearing from Richard O'Shea. I loved hearing from – and, and all the other testimonials that we've gotten in. I just – it confirms – Every so often, Rob and I need a little reaffirmation. Not to go all doc, not to go all Doctor Phil on us here, but we've been working hard on this darned thing for over three years now. And to hear Richard O'Shea say that it's everything Rob and I hoped it would be to people, and then some, is just wonderful. That's marvelous. Well, that's grand. And we thank everybody for contributing. And uh, like Rob said, he's going to post the number so you two can have your little pitch and, uh, and, and put in your two cents <laughs> for the 40 bucks or the 40 bucks for the two cents, however you wish to, uh, to wrap that around. Guys, the big question on the internet this week supposedly and roiling the chat room at, uh, or the comments at Ricochet was whether or not – Mitt is the man in 2016. This is supposedly based on a Forbes or a Politico piece which yeah. says that he's considering it. Uh, he's not. I heard the interview that he gave in the Hugh Hewitt show. He's not considering it. He's not going to do it. So why are we talking about this? Is it because we think maybe the country would give him a chance this time or are we just bored? Wait a minute. You heard him tell Hugh over and over again, no, Hugh, I'm not going to do it in that circumstance. No, I'm not going to do it in that circumstance. And then finally Hugh got him to say, well, but circumstances change. The fact is a former presidential candidate who claims he's lost any interest in politics was talking to Hugh Hewitt and does so regularly. Not that that often. For a man for often, a lot more often than than, uh, 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 other Ordinary Americans. For a man who claims he has no interest in running for president, Mitt Romney is popping up a lot of places. So the question strikes me as completely valid. And I have to say, I was very surprised by the overall tenor of the reaction on Ricochet, which was what? Three out of five negative, almost four out of five negative. It's more. Every so often, I put up a post just asking because I would like to know what how people. Respond. I myself thought Romney was only the best of a weak field and ran a weak campaign. But 
last time around, lots of people on Ricochet beat me uh, with cudgels every time I said so. So I know that Mitt Romney has powerful fans. And it was a stronger reaction saying, Mitt, no, stay home. Your time has passed. Even then, when I put up, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, what are people thinking of Jeb Bush? And about half of our folks said, no way. It's just the hour has passed. So to Mm -hmm. me, the surprise was very strongly anti-Mitt. Was Robert. that a surprise? No, really. I, I'm not yeah, it was sure. To I mean, me, actually, I, I think it's. I think often all these things get conflated between the guy. I mean, Mitt Romney would would have been a much better president right now. I'd rather have him, Mitt Romney, in the White House. I voted for Mitt Romney. I want. I wanted him to be president. Um, whether, but I lost that, so I, I don't get to have Mitt Romney president right now. And I guess the issue for us, and that's sort of as a as a as a movement or as a sort of a generally sort of directionally unified group, is we want somebody fresh and new and different and a little bit more appealing. And this seems to be a good opportunity, generationally and uh, I don't know demographically and a lot of other ways. Um, seems to be a good moment to find somebody new and somebody young and some, not young necessarily, but somebody fresh, right? Somebody we haven't necessarily heard from, somebody who may be more appealing uh, rather than running a rerun as great as Mitt is. Listen, I mean, for me, I, I love Jeb Bush. I think Jeb Bush is one of the smartest, most interesting politicians around. I think what he did at Florida, I think he's a proven, effective uh, chief executive of a, of a state. Uh, I think what he did with edu- education in Florida, uh, his actual record of, of accomplishment is very, very high. Well, hold um, on right there. Hold on right there yeah. because education is going to be the thing that splits the base. Jeb is very much pro common core. Mm. Yeah, that could be. That could be. Uh, agree. I'm, I'm just talking about his accomplishment as a governor. Like he actually has an accomplishment. He can run. He's not a talker. He's not a guy who's, who's, who appears on talk shows and talks. He was a governor of a very large, important state, and he has a record of accomplishment. And those are, those are going to be, for me anyway, my uh, metrics. Uh, it says somebody managed to put through a handful of what I consider to be uh, right and smart and conservative solutions to problems in a state uh, or in a group, in a, in a political body that is um, that has required him to act politically and with strength, but also with compromise. And that's Jeb Bush to me, and that's Scott Walker to me. That's probably Bobby Jindal to me. That's probably Nikki Haley to me. That's someone like that, you know. Um, All right. Well, then let me ask so. you guys this. Uh, let's take Bobby Jindal. Do you think that Bobby Jindal, as much as you may like his ideas and his record, is a good presidential candidate, or would he strike a lot of people as a really fast-talking, smart guy who doesn't interest them charismatically. Hmm. Um, that could be. That's fine. I mean, that's all right. There's early days. We can, we can wait and see. It doesn't, that's, uh, that's something that, he, that all candidates are going to have to make their case for. He may choose not to do it. Um, yeah, that, uh, the answer to that is I don't know. I've seen Bobby Jindal in a couple of settings in which I was very impressed Mm-hmm. And frankly, I've seen Bobby Jindal in a couple of settings in which I thought he was giving a rote speech that he'd given a hundred times before and not making much of an effort. And neither I nor anyone else in the audience was terribly impressed. This is a situation – this is not 19, 1980 where you have a candidate, Ronald Reagan, who's been in the wings for years, who's a dominant figure in the party. Uh, this is wide, wide, wide open. By the way, in fairness to Mitt Romney – uh, there were. It's not as if all the comments were negative. One uh, Ricochet member, Stephen Hall, said, "I'd like to see a Romney Perry or a Perry Romney ticket." Romney was quite possibly the best potential president ever to have been defeated. 
that's a kind of sweet and sour comment, but there is a lot of sweetness in it. Um, by the way, Rob, when you tick down the list of people that you found impressive, I, I think the point you were making was that the, almost everyone you mentioned was a sitting or a former governor. You left out Perry. I did leave out Perry. I, I, I didn't mean to, but I, oh, I, I, but he, he, he be, I mean, look, I, I'm, I haven't quite made up my mind about Perry, so I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. undecided yet. I, I don't, I mean, he is in fact a sitting governor. I feel like his record of accomplishment, getting things done in a state that had an opposition and allowed and vocal opposition and a powerful opposition is less impressive to me than Scott Walker or Jeb Bush. Because he did not have a powerful yeah. and vocal opposition. Yeah. He didn't he didn't have to get in there and kinda turn some screws and, and fight. And I mean, uh, to me, I, I'm sort of on the record right now. It, it's my my current number one is Scott Walker simply because of what he's managed to do, what he's managed to accomplish, big, big conservative things in a state that is not a big conservative state. He's managed to do that and actually get and be popular in a, the, the very least a, a purple state. And I think the next president, the next conservative president of the United States is going to have to do that. That's, those are the, exactly the skills domestically anyway, mm-hmm. that a president of the United States who's aligned with me is going to have to have because no matter – you know, one of our problems I, I think that we, we fall into on our side and I think the zealots on the other side do too is we think that we won. We always think that everybody's in favor of us and we think that we were winning – you know, well, I heard this after Romney lost. Well, you know, we, we kind of didn't lose. If you really look at it a certain way, we didn't really lose. Well, we don't. We lost, and we we have lost a good part of the country. A good part of the country expects handouts. A good part of the country expects uh, a giant labor union, um, uh, public sector contracts. A big part of the big part of the country wants the government to take care of it from cradle to grave. And whoever's going to change that is going to have to have political skills uh, that are almost matched to that battle. And right now, to me, that seems to come up Scott Walker. Well, Rob's right in the sense that we didn't win, and I, you can't look around at the political landscape and say that we did. I understand that. But on the other hand, since since we haven't and since we've lost so much of the electorate, I always look at the presidential choice as somebody who can appeal to that middle. And I always get this sort of nervous tingle in my spine. Whenever we're all agreed on the right that this person is absolutely the best standard bearer, uh, it, it, it often means that they are absolutely unelectable because they've satisfied and ticked <laughs> off all of the things that we like, but the middle just finds them to be either yeah. dull or repulsive or the rest of it. You're right about Scott Walker. He had a hard job there. That was a dry shave. And, uh, you know, you could say this. You could say that Rick Perry has has been able to have a legislature that provided him with lubricants and emollients and a culture that made that that (laughs) sheer genius glide down the cheek and go around the jowl line without without work. But that's true. However, whatever shaving metaphor you want to use, you you use them all. I just did. You know the blade to use, too, and that's Harry's. Harry's less than a year old. Can't wait until we celebrate their actual one-year anniversary. And they've already been disrupting the industry. We're all about disruption, right? Well, this is a disruption on a facial hygienic scale. They're offering a better shaving experience or a value than the giants like Schick or Gillette or anybody else you can think about. We're not talking about some guy sending you a hipster blade that you have to get out the leather strop that's been hand-trimmed by artisans somewhere and tanned from the hide of a cow that was raised in the Andes. No, this is a blade that comes to your door and it's great. It's such a good blade. They bought the factory, a 93-year-old German factory that turns out these blades. Harry said, come on, bring it in the supply chain, and there they go. When you get this kit, you'll get the emollients, you'll get the lubrication, you'll get the blades, and the handle itself is so nicely balanced, you'll just love to pick it up and shave with it. The blades are half the price of the competition. You don't have to go to the store. They come to you. It's mailed directly. You know, you can't beat it. 
and we don't ask you to beat it because you got to go there and try it and you'll be a Henry's Cup. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Customer for life. Go to Harry's.com. Use the promo code Ricochet and you will save $5 of your first purchase. Do so not only for a better shave, but to thank them for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. And speaking of which on Ricochet, maybe a month ago was one of the most heartrending stories I'd heard in a long time. It was uh, just a tale of somebody who lived in Sweden. And by the time she got to Amsterdam, her luggage had been ripped, vandalized, soaked with coke. All because there was an Israeli flag, flag on, the pack, on, the, on the luggage itself. It was dismaying. And you know the worst part about it was? It wasn't surprising. The author of that post was, uh, was Annika Henroth Rothstein, political advisor, Zionist, writer, conservative, Jewish she-beast. <laughs> that, that's the self-description. I love it. Yeah, I love on the right, and, and she's on the right side of young and promising, she says. You can follow her on Twitter at, uh, at Truth and Fiction. And we welcome her to this, the Ricochet Podcast. Hi there. Hi there. So this story, uh, your, your luggage had an Israeli flag on it. It was vandalized when you're traveling from Stockholm to Amsterdam. Uh, so you imagine yes. that some that, that some I mean I thought okay I've been to both who did it where was it somebody in Stockholm you think who ripped it up and somebody in Amsterdam and more to the point when you visualize the person who did it what do you see what do you think well first of all I um, I can only assume that it was someone in Stockholm because they wouldn't have had enough time this that much I figured out uh, in Amsterdam mm-hmm. so it was probably some uh, luggage handler in Stockholm who did it. And I wasn't that surprised. Uh, I was actually warned. I put a a picture of my bag very proudly on Facebook before I left because this was this huge ordeal even to get to Israel because, of course, all the flights had been canceled. And I finally found a flight through Amsterdam and I was on my way and I put an Israeli flag. And people started warning me, most of all other Jews, saying that, how stupid are you uh, to travel that way through Europe? But you know, I disregarded those comments and uh, I went on my way. And I even had uh, an altercation with someone in the cab to the airport in Stockholm um, with an Arab cab driver on my way there. So now I was not that surprised. 
And uh, in my mind, it's the same kind of person who I deal with uh, on pretty much a weekly basis, um, a young Arab man, an angry young Arab man. Annika, Peter Robinson here. Welcome to the Hi. podcast. So yeah. that's what I wanted to ask, whether what from this distance, I'm sitting here in California, we read a, often now about the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. And what I can't, what I have trouble understanding understanding or sorting out, not all the stories do a very good job of sorting it out either. There is now a large Muslim population in Europe. Concentra- yes. I think Rotterdam is now majority Muslim, if I remember the figures correctly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And of course, all, every poll shows that Muslims are strongly in favor of this, that, or the other Islamic movement and strongly anti-Israel. And so that that I get. The question that I I have I, is the extent to which the non-Muslim population, the Christian or post-Christian or whatever is the best descriptor for most Gentile Europeans these days, the extent to which they share real animosity toward Israel and toward Jews versus the extent to which they merely permit the Muslims who now live among them to express that animosity themselves. Do you see what I'm asking? I see what you're asking. I would say that the countries where um, it's been the easiest for the growing Muslim population to um, get a voice and gain ground are the uh, very secular countries such as my own. My country is the second most secular country in the world, according to recent polls, Uh, and those who lack national identity. These are the issues that I keep writing about, that without a strong national identity, when you are a very uh, secular country, there is very little to defend. You don't know who you are. If, it's, if you don't know who you are yourself, it's very hard for you to tell someone else who you are supposed to be when you arrive in that country. Okay, so that, that's something, again, this is all, bear in mind, you're talking to somebody who's sitting in California five or 6,000 mm-hmm. miles away yeah. trying to figure it all out. All my life, which is getting to be a while now, every time somebody on the left wanted to say, all right, communism doesn't work, but socialism does, they would say, and they still say, look at Sweden. It is a peaceful country. It is a wonderfully prosperous country. Inequality is very minor. You can get a, a, a job there, a good job there. You can get a superb education. It is a kind of socialist paradise. And you're saying, you say to that, yes, but we're now I open to it. What do you, how do you answer that? I actually that? say uh, perhaps in the past, no, mm. for today. Because when, you, when there are more people, we have a social security system that is, uh, you can live pretty well without a job here. Right. Um, so you can, uh, you can live very well without a job here. But if you get to the point where there are fewer people, we have a very high tax rate, which I guess you're all aware of. But if there are not enough people paying taxes, it's a pretty easy equation, really, because now we have a lot of people, a lot of immigration, a lot of people who are not paying taxes, but merely receiving. And that has put us in a pretty dire situation. There was actually a political debate. We have an election, uh, a national election and coming up this September. And there was a big debate because we're going to have even higher taxes now to be able to handle um, immigration, the issues that have arisen because of immigration. So there has been a cultural shift in the past, I would say, 10 years. 
and uh, maybe this was a haven uh, when I was a child, some uh, 20 years ago, but uh, not anymore. Okay, hey, so, uh, go a- ahead, Annika, it's, it's, it's Rob Long in Hi. New York. How are you? Um, I'm good. I got a question. So all this, I mean, if you're like a conservative or I mean, even like a rhino squish like me in the United <laughs> States and you hear someone talking like that, you think to yourself, well, is there – is there a conservative voice or a small government voice in Sweden who is not also a nationalist voice? Do you know what I'm saying? That there's, I know, there's yeah, yeah. There, there always seems to be, you know, uh, we, we read, uh, you read the, the, the news here, and they, they always mention, well, there's a conservative, there's a small government, low taxes. Um, uh, candidate there, and then the second half of his platform is always something that's a little. A little too nasty, a little too kind of fascist mm-hmm. for us. Right, is right. there normal? Is there a normal? Is there a normal free market conservative there? I would say that of course they exist. Would they ever get to govern? No. So they exist. <laughs> <laughs> so they well, exist. same here, frankly. So yeah, I get it. <laughs> and and you know, most people that call themselves when I when I go to a party or a dinner party and say I'm a conservative. They say, well, I am too. And I say, no, 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 I'm actually a conservative. Because when you call yourself a conservative in Sweden, that, is, that would equal a Democrat in the U.S. Right. Because uh, that's as conservative as it gets. And what, you, what we call a liberal here would be a socialist to you. So it's a huge cultural and political difference um, that I could spend hours talking about, honestly. But, but it's, it's different. So now they would never get to govern because this is ingrained in us. Um, we have uh, – there's a dependency on certain welfare institutions that even the most conservative – most conservatives uh, would fight to keep. Right. So is there any sense – well, again, you go country after country after country. Britain, there's the UKIP party and a sense that the Tories have to do something to win re-election. Whatever is going on, the status quo is no longer sustainable. In France, President Hollande, whose ratings are below 20 percent, astonishingly enough – I didn't know you could – be a president of France and have ratings that low, has just <laughs> reshuffled his cabinet, probably being a socialist, he'll get it all wrong. But again, there's a sense that the, the center-left status quo in France, in Spain, in Italy, cannot continue. Things have to change. The welfare state, just as you described, is no longer affordable. There are cultural challenges. Uh, this notion of losing the national identity, having it dissolved in a larger European identity is just not working for lots of – is there any sense of that in Sweden? Or, there or let's, is. Say, let's say Scandinavia, Sweden Nor- – of course, Norway is more conservative, isn't it, by, even by Swedish it, standards? It is, definitely, and, and we've seen proof of that uh, just this week as we've had a debate on the growing issue of uh, extremism and um, – homegrown terrorism where young Muslim men who are born in this country go to fight uh, global jihad in Syria and in Somalia and Iraq. And uh, Norway just passed a law to um, withdraw their citizenships, whereas our prime minister here in Sweden said a definite no to that. So we're handling our issues and our challenges very differently. Even hold, on, between- hold on, hold on, hold on. It's just fascinating. The issue, the issue was somebody can go on <laughs> jihad Fighting yes. against the West, uh-huh. and the good people of Sweden will say, "No, no, no! Of course, he's still one of us." Yes, yes, unbelievable. I know. So, but, where do but, they send? But, do they send the benefits? Do they send the benefits somewhere? No, so, but he yes, was never. So but he would. 
He was never one of you. That's the point. Doesn't anybody realize? No. And they are now, but he has agreed to, my prime minister has so kindly agreed to head up a commission where he will investigate the possibility of maybe filing charges, um, criminal charges in Sweden, where this person still has citizenship after coming home alive, after fighting jihad in a different country and probably scheming to you know, uh, fight jihad in Sweden as well, he might be prosecuted. But they are also um, wanting to prosecute the young men and women who go to fight in the IDF because they equate those two. Of course. So one of them is ideological and that's the anti-Zionism, the anti-Israel, the, the anti-Semitism. That the, <laughs> the, the other is a sort of cultural, of willful cultural suicide that you have to scratch your head and wonder what it comes from. When you look at continental Europe, you can say, well, the experience of World War One left them with – and World War Two left them with a deep loathing of nationalism. But it's something more than that. I remember back in the 70s, I read this wonderful series of Swedish detective novels called the Martin Beck series. And it was a, 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 picture, yes. a picture of a glum, dour, socialist state. They were great books, but they were written by Marxists. And the last word, literally, in the entire, in the entire series is an endorsement of Marxism. Isn't underneath what we're talking about here the most absolutely born-in-the-bread Marxism that believes in dissolving not just the nation-state but individual identity into this slew, this soup, this swamp of just the proles keeping aloft their uh, their wonderful Bolshevik betters. Oh, did I say Bolshevik? I'm so very sorry. So how much uh, – I mean how much of this is is just actual – the end result of leftism, not just socialism or progressivism, but the, the absolute reduced to its essence leftism, that they side with the ISIS sympathizers because those yes. guys have the same idea, which is to extirpate the sin of mm. Western colonialism from the face of the globe. Am I overemphasizing or, or – No, you're not truth? actually. You're not actually. I was going to use the word – self-hatred but you said it's so much better uh, because the one couldn't exist without the other so this is uh this is more than allowing it to exist this is uh you know standing cheering i was uh laughing i didn't know whether to laugh or cry the other day when there was actually the swedish neo-nazi party was having a rally five minutes from my house so i had to pick up my children early so that we wouldn't get uh, caught in the riots on our way home so i sat watching them and they were, and then the extreme left was there to fight them and and i was you know almost laughing when i when i saw that this is Two sides of the same coin, basically, mm. and and they share a common enemy. So this is we are in a time of extremism uh, in Europe overall now, and we could see it in the in the European parliamentary uh, elections that it's either extreme left or extreme right, and there's no sense of normalcy. Uh, so the answer to your question is: there a sane conservative idea? Is there a, a sane conservative party? No, there isn't. Annika, last question from me, from Peter. You just mentioned your kids. If uh, they're they're under teenage, right? They're they're little kids, as I recall. Yes, they are. All right. They are. So, the future for your kids? Do you start thinking to yourself, "I've got to get them out of Sweden," or do you say to yourself, "I simply teach them how to behave. I teach them their how to how to behave as Jews and as uh, pol- uh, political conservatives, and if they're strong." Uh, they'll be able to – they'll be fine. How, how do you think about – excuse So the point is – I'm asking a complicated question. It's not complicated at all. You live in a pretty scary Europe. Mm-hmm. How do you think about your children growing up there? 
Well, there is no way to, I mean, I have a, I've committed some sort of uh, double fault here because I am both conservative and religious and, oh, maybe a triple fault because I'm also a Jew. So there, there is <laughs> You're the no- whole package, baby. <laughs> the whole package. <laughs> so no, there is no future because I don't want to teach them what I m- myself was taught, uh, which is how to alter your life and alter your, um, your personality, basically, and your entire existence to survive. And I, I love the way they are now. We were just laughing. They're, the Communist Party has their, um, um, uh, their housing right next to where we live, and we pass through every day when I walk. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My kids to school. And my six-year-old asked the flag, they had the communist flag outside and he saw it and he said, are those communists? And I said, yes. And he said, isn't it true that if I save up all my money uh, to get an iPad, doesn't it mean that they, even if they didn't save any of their money, wants a part of my iPad as well? <laughs> and, and I laughed and I said, yes, that's yes. true. And he started laughing and he said, oh, they're so stupid. When are they going to get that? That's never going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed and I said, I want him to have that. I want him to still, you know, yeah. in many ways, my children are still, um, they're innocent enough to not have caught on. And I want them to get the, the hell out of here before they, they catch on and to be free and proud uh, Jews and uh, God willing I li- conservatives. I would like your son to call our 800 number and leave a ricochet testimonial. He seems, to, <laughs> he seems perfect for us. He should, he yes. should be a Reagan member. He really, he really, really should. He really should. And I bet he would love Ricochet as much as I do. You know, I can be the poster child. Exactly. So I've, I've been welcomed so well to this, this wonderful well, we're, we're place. thrilled to have you. We're thrilled to have you. Thank Absolutely you. so. And, you know, it sounds absurd in this day and age to say this to somebody in Sweden, but uh, be safe. I will. I will do my best. Thank you. Well, uh, that's why there's an Israel. 
uh, when, you know, if, you, if your experience of Sweden consists of getting off the cruise ship and going to the old part of the town and the charming parts and walking through the great parks and seeing people lounging about and thinking, well, this actually might be the apex of civilization. They seem to have it figured out here. But then you realize that, that uh, what they have created perhaps is a state that uh, breeds discontent and hatred and imports a bunch of people who have more discontent and hatred than the original residents have for themselves. It's not a good recipe. And that's why you need a place, a bolt hole, if you will or a, uh, a shining example of what you can do when left to your own devices. Whatever you want to call it, Israel is an interesting place. And in the Middle East, it is the, the one beacon of democracy. Doesn't that sound odd? And yet they're the most hated. Huh. Huh. Uh, how did that happen? Well, if you, would un- if you want an example of uh, how it happened... Making David into Goliath is a book by Joshua Moravchik, and it's at the uh, Encounter Books this week. It's our pick. Here is the Princes. Making David into Goliath traces the process by which material pressures and intellectual fashions reshape world opinion of Israel. Additionally, terrorism, oil, blackmail, and the sheer size of the Arab and Muslim populations gave the world powerful inducements to back the Arab cause. And then a prevalent new paradigm of leftist orthodoxy, which uh, class struggles supplanted noble struggles of people of color, created a lexicon of rationales for taking sides against Israel. Thus, nations behave cravenly while striking a high-minded pose and aligning themselves in the Middle East conflict. Uh, to get this book for 15% off the list price or any other book for that matter, you can go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code Ricochet at the checkout. Do so to get a good book, learn something, and to thank EncounterBooks for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Well, guys, um, you know, it's it's – uh, what do you think? I mean, do you think the case is being overstated that uh, you, you read about this? You read about the gentleman in L.A. the other day who just posted on uh, um, an account of being. Oh, yeah. A, Elon a, Gold. Yeah. Elon Gold. Right. Where he's just right. walking down the street and with his, with, his uh, kids, the, with his kids. Yeah. With his kids and some thugs jump out of a car and start screaming anti Israel, anti-Jew, anti-Jew, kill the Jew, yeah. essentially. It, it, this is what it all boils down to. You can dress it up in however many trendy slogans as you want to, but it's kill the Jew. Um, are, are these things just getting more traction now because we have the internet, or is this actually something that's growing? And, uh, and Well, in a way, I think it's, it's interesting cultural jujitsu, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, as it were, because the, the, the reason that there's a, a space for this kind of language is because there's no space in our culture right now, in, our, in Western culture, sort of in Western progressive approved culture, for any condemnation of a group that simply isn't performing. So no one in Sweden and no one in the New York Times and no one in the United States, no, in, sort of in its progressive institutions, would ever say, isn't it odd that this little country that's 11 miles wide in some places is doing better economically, better socially, has more uh, social cohesion, has more democracy, has more stability, has more prosperity than its neighbors surrounding it? Um, and, and what does it say about Western values versus uh, Eastern values? And I, I said this a while ago, and I, I, I saw this on Twitter. I thought it's really interesting that in, in, in the West we're experimenting with driverless cars, and in the Arab world they're experimenting with women driving cars. And there's no one, no one right now in the progressive institutions, certainly not in the New York Times, anywhere else, with Sweden, is saying those things. So as, as long as there's a complete vacuum for the opposite. A complete vacuum for anyone to ever remind the Arab world that their problems and their backwardness and their uh, dis- their instability is a, really a sign of their own shortcomings. Um, as long as that's never ever uttered, 
well, what do you have? You have this kind of you, – you have a sort of the, the lunatics running the asylum. You have this sort of crazy town, which is what we have, which is exactly what would happen in, 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 a, in, a, sort of a, in a family if you let one child uh, ru- rule the roost without ever being reprimanded or ever being shown reality. I mean that's really what's, what's going on here, right? I mean, I mean I, even – I remember hearing people screaming at the beginning of this uh, latest war between um, Hamas and Israel. That, uh, the, 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 that the Hamas was protesting the occupation. Well, it's been an occupation of, the, of, of Gaza for almost 10 years. But people just don't care. They don't care. Just, they just simply cannot bring themselves to criticize um, the Arab culture. They can't bring themselves to do it. It's not allowed. And as long as that's not allowed, you'll, you'll never stop people in Los Angeles pulling over and screaming at a guy who's dressed with his family for Shabbat. You'll never stop some baggage handler uh, uh, dis- uh, you know, destroying someone's luggage. You'll never stop it. That's entirely – everything you said is unfair, Rob. First of all, the, the occupation <laughs> is the existence of Israel and you know that. When they say stop the occupation, yeah, it's the existence of Israel. Secondly, the, secondly, the point about driverless cars, again, I, you're just not giving them enough credit here. We may be experiencing with driverless cars, but if you remember the story of the donkey that came over the border strapped with the explosives, they're experimenting with driverless truck bombs. Okay, So there's that. Don't say they're not making progress. Finally, uh, when you want to talk about the values perhaps that the that – the, that the, Arab world would be wise to assume or at least look at or examine or incorporate in their own structures. Well, you know, you can pick up a book called Constitutional Conservatism, Liberty, Self-Government and Political Moderation. And it is by Peter Berkowitz, who happens to be our next guest here in the podcast, senior fellow with the Hoover Institute at Stanford. His writings are posted at uh, peterberkowitz.com and you can follow him at Peter, well, I'm sorry, at Berkowitz Peter. He's uh, got a Yoda-like construction to his handle there. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks. Peter, Peter Robinson here. You were mentioning, you and I were talking the other day about the work you're doing at the uh, Bush Center, part of the Bush, George W. Bush Library down in Dallas, teaching the fundamentals of constitutional order and democracy to young people from countries that lack them. Could you describe that? Sure. Uh, actually, it was a terrific experience. The, um, at, the, at the George W. Bush Presidential Center, there's a, uh, also a public policy research center called the Bush Institute. And the Bush Institute launched this year something they call the Leadership and Liberty Forum. The purpose is to bring to, to Dallas, where the Bush Center is located every year, about 20 students, uh, students um, grown-ups, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, were working to expand freedom in their countries. Uh, this was the uh, the maiden year. The Bush Institute brought uh, 20 freedom activists from Burma, a very impressive group of men and women, uh, uh, many of whom have already made considerable sacrifices on behalf of freedom. A third, I think, of our students, a third of the 18 students, uh, have served time as political prisoners. And the idea was to give them an opportunity to study the classics of political and economic freedom. This is especially important for the Burmese students because their authoritarian government, their military authoritarian government, um, severely limits the books that are available in Burma, has eliminated political science departments from universities. Uh, the students that we taught, one after another, would say, say to us things like, We know we want freedom and democracy, but we don't really know what freedom and democracy are. So the Bush Institute for two and a half weeks provided them 
uh, introductory classes, high-level but introductory classes on the principles of freedom and democracy. Hmm. Peter, so this there's a larger, large question here, which I will put in a sloppy way and you will answer in a precise way, me being me and you being you. And the question would be – so – these kids come from Burma. So the question would be as simple as follows. It would contrast George W. Bush and his democracy project in the Middle East with Barack Obama and his cruise missiles. And George W. the argument would go, George W. Bush simply overreached. At some level, the level of 18 students at a time from Burma, the world outside the United States does want democracy but at the level of transforming entire countries quickly and in a region, the Arab world, which has no experience of democracy whatsoever in its 13 centuries of existence, that's an overreach. And it was a mistake. And Barack Obama, by contrast, who understands that in the Middle East, it's not our job to implant democracy, but simply to do what we must do namely kill bad guys to protect this country, their Barack Obama is simply being more realistic and having a and, – and, and, and in some sense because his foreign policy is more limited and more directly tied to the defense of this republic, it's more successful. I have a feeling you have good answers to that, but go ahead. Yeah. I'm also delighted that you've allotted five hours for this podcast. <laughs> no, we, uh, Peter, we, we need your answer in the form of a tweet. <laughs> okay, well, I'll take a few seconds to get it down to a tweet. Let's begin here. Um, uh, first, my view is that the, the Bush administration did not initially go into Iraq to impose democracy by force. That was a kind of uh, after-the-fact justification when it was revealed that when the Bush administration couldn't find weapons of mass destruction, which was the primary reason. But nevertheless, you're right. The Bush administration mounted a campaign uh, beginning in October, November 2003 to make the argument that it was America's mission to bring democracy to the uh, Arab Muslim Middle East. And I do believe, I agree with you, that involved a, a, an overreach. Mm. Not because we don't have an interest in the Middle East that's more liberal and more democratic. We, we actually, in my view, have a keen interest, but we didn't sufficiently appreciate the severe limitations on our ability to bring that transformation about. Um, my own view about the Obama administration is that it has been highly erratic, if not schizophrenic. Keep in mind that the Obama administration's uh, the United States ambassador to the United Nations is a champion of uh, an extraordinarily aggressive view about America's need to intervene in, uh, in other countries. And the president, as far as I can tell, has o oscillated between an interventionist view, the Cairo speech of 2009, and uh, a more uh, subdued, restrained, uh, realist account. Um, and I certainly do think that what the, what the Bush administration, sorry, what the George W. Bush Presidential Center is doing now with, the, uh, with its Liberty and Leadership Forum is uh, an entirely valid and mm. a quite, quite good use of restricted funds. That is, nobody's forcing uh, these, these, in this particular case, 18 Burmese students to come. My observation is that they were all 
highly enthusiastic and very grateful to be there. And this is the United States doing something it can do. That is, right. this is George right. W. Bush as a private citizen offering an opportunity to students who are hungry to study freedom and democracy, the opportunity to uh, study them. It's true. Right now, it's not much more than planting seeds, but planting seeds is something that we are capable of. Sure. So uh, to transfer that set of questions, to, to, to those of us who are trying to sort out a proper constitutionally-based foreign policy on our side, you've got, on the one hand, Rand Paul, whom mm-hmm. Dick Cheney has called, for, quote, frankly, isolationist, close quote. On the other hand, well, here you've got Rick Perry who wrote a piece, a column, this would be two or three weeks ago, apparently, as best I can tell, simply because Rand, he was just sick and tired of hearing Rand Paul. So within the Republican Party, this is going to play out uh, if the GOP takes the Senate in the midterm elections, which are now just a couple of months away, you can bet that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is going to become a place where this gets played out, and surely it will be played out in the presidential primaries if we know anything well, we don't know this, but if we're willing to bet anything, you'd bet anything that both Rand Paul and Rick Perry, among many others, will be running. So what, what advice would you offer as a constitutional scholar and someone with a deep knowledge of and interest in foreign policy to those on the Republican side? Uh, well, you're, you're kind in your description. Here's what, I, here's what I'll uh, modestly offer. Uh, or I'll say, I should say what, what I'm looking for. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Before the candidate is someone who will first affirm and infirm strongly that America does indeed have a powerful, a vital national security interest in a more liberal and democratic world, one. Second, I want a candidate who will acknowledge the severe limitations on our understanding of the Middle East and other regions of the world, limitation on, uh, on our ability to have fruitful impact. And third, I look for a candidate who can then enter into a reasonable discussion of what we can accomplish with highly limited means to promote liberty and democracy in the world. Um, that's that's where I'd be. That's where I'd begin. I think that's uh, consistent with the constitutional vision that underlies our country. Hey, uh, Peter, it's uh, Rob Long in New York. How hey, are Rob. you? Hey, uh, so I have a question. So you're you're in the Bush Center, and you were speaking to a lot of young people who are, who are um, you know, refugees, or or, uh, or or not refugees, but like are were past uh, citizens of dictatorships. Yep. What's the difference between dictatorships when they fall? We saw, we see what's happening in Libya. We see what's going. We can only imagine what's going to happen in Syria. What's sort of happening now? Uh, we see revolutions in uh, in Iran. What happened in Iran? How is that different from what happened in, say, Chile or Slork in Myanmar? Since you were talking about Burma, or um, even you know, on, Spain under Franco. What, what's what, 
what's the is it is it is it the way the rest of the world treats those countries as they ease away from dictatorship, or is there something about the quality of the dictator himself, or are there just good ones and bad ones? Um, y- yes, yes, and yes. Although, uh, I, although I also add this observation: um, what will arise after the dictatorship falls depends heavily on the culture already in place. Uh-huh. That is, you know, if you've had, if you have a culture that has uh, that had for some time, for some time, I mean, centuries been teaching the idea that human beings are by nature free and equal. If that's deeply inscribed in the culture, one uh, can be more optimistic about what happens after the collapse of the dictatorship. If you have a society that is a culture and a society based on uh, the idea that the um, not only the fundamental moral unit is the family, but one has no particular obligations to anybody who outside of the family, um, then you're going to have trouble organizing a liberal democracy, which um, does suppose that the family is the primary moral unit, but um, but also assumes that every individual, when I say primary moral unit, unit for rearing children and so on. Right. But it, a liberal democracy also supposes that every individual carries rights. If you don't have that in the society, you're going to have trouble. One other uh, factor I'd, uh, I'd look at, and this is a point that's emphasized by... Um, by Hoover colleague uh, Victor Davis Hanson, um, in World War II, at the end of World War II, um, what you had were two countries, Germany and Japan, that had been brought to their knees, which agreed to unconditional surrenders, which had been humiliated and destroyed and could be reconstructed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that made transition to liberty and democracy in both those countries uh, much e- easier. If you have li- the lingering culture of the dictatorship and lingering forces that are friendly to the dictatorship, a, tran- a transition to a form of government um, that we could admire in the United States will be much more difficult. Hmm. So I guess the, the conclusion I'm drawing is that uh, uh, Burma, with its sort of centuries-old tradition of, of a very traditional uh, Buddhism, Chile, with its tradition, sort of in Spain for that matter, of Western Catholicism, sort of uh, you know enlightened Catholicism, enlightened Western culture, that's different from – I mean if you look at what happened in the former Yugoslavia, the death of Tito, a dictator dies and the war – that the, the civil war, which was as which was as brutal and as ugly, not quite as brutal yeah. and as ugly as anything happening under ISIS, but certainly in that direction, the things that happened on the, in, in European soil during that war were pretty pretty terrible. That yeah. uh, that was a clash of two cultures that were sort of uneasily yoked together since you know the Ottoman Empire. Um, okay. I mean, I, okay, I'm trying to back into a, a, a probably a rather. A, 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 impolitic point about the difference between Western and Eastern cultures and East and Muslim culture. Am I making uh, too much of it? Um, I don't think so. Uh, look, uh, liberal, liberal democracy depends upon certain beliefs, certain convictions. The most important one that it depends upon is that we're all bearers of rights, or as we put it in our constitutional tradition, that we're all by nature free and equal. Um, if you don't subscribe to that, and when I say subscribe to it, I certainly don't um, mean that it's necessary for you to have studied and internalized uh, every detail of John Locke's second treatise. 
What I mean is, uh, much more importantly, that you, uh, your parents, their parents have had the opportunity to live under a regime that treats people that way. And so that it's a matter of interacting with other people. When you go to the movie theater, when you're at a stoplight, when you're in school studying with uh, other boys and, very importantly, other girls, you internalize the idea, even if you can't articulate it in high philosophical terms, that, you know, those other people who are not part of my family, who look different, have different color skin, they're, they're human beings too. If they get in trouble with the police, they'll be treated in a certain, in the same way that I'd be treated with, and so on. If your culture does not teach those things, the transition to liberty mm -hmm. and democracy is going to be much harder. I don't say it will take centuries. Everything is hurried up in the year 2014 because we have... Uh, because we have social media, the internet, email, because even in totalitarian societies today, you can still get images of uh, men and women behaving equally. Even in Qatar, home of Al Jazeera, young men and women, teenagers, can still see images on TV of uh, men, Arab men, Muslim men in Western business suits, and Arab Muslim women in business attire for women, Sitting, uh, sitting behind a desk, both delivering the news. That actually sends uh, a message subversive of religious authoritarianism and sends, sends the kind of message that we want to send about freedom and equality. Mm. Peter, Peter Robinson here again. So I'm trying, as you've been talking, I'm trying to apply what you're saying to China. And mm -hmm. uh, to, to quote our friend Dan Henninger at the Wall Street Journal, Mao eliminated Confucianism and Deng Xiaoping eliminated Maoism. And now what you have in China is a vast emptiness and understanding of the marketplace and the desire for material improvement and very little underpinning of meaning and principle and conviction. And uh, I, think I'm, I think I'm putting Dan's argument correctly that a, you don't want a country as wide open and uncertain as that in charge of a large part of the world, meaning we need to remain in the Pacific. That's a separate point. But B, China is just in some deep sense up for grabs. What do you make of that? Um, un unfortunately, I uh, generally agree with it. You know, we are witnessing a uh, an experiment in China. We, we still refer to, and rightly, I think, the American experiment in self-government. Right. Well, we've got a, um, and it's, in my judgment, it's been a very impressive experiment. Well, we've got a different kind of experiment in China, an unprecedented movement of people out of the life of, uh, uh, life of a peasant into, into the middle class, unprecedented decades of uh, growth. As, as you pointed out, citing uh, Dan Henninger, nevertheless, the evisceration uh, for those people who've moved from the countryside into the city and evisceration of their cultural underpinnings. And the experiment is, um, maybe not the one they intended to run, but the one that they're, they are nevertheless running and we're observing is, what happens when you get massive amounts of economic freedom, but no political freedom and no not a culture of political freedom. Mm. Um, it seems to me Dan is right to be uh, very suspicious 
and uh, very wary, and and we should be as well. I mean, the, the more optimistic take is that uh, economic freedom, the experience of economic freedom, will breed a taste for more and more political freedom, for the demand of uh, the people, for more opportunity to choose their rulers, and for more protections in the uh, um, in the political sphere, more protections of uh, freedom of worship, freedom of speech, criminal protections, and so on. But we don't know. That's a that's a hopeful hypothesis. Um, we need to continue to be very wary as we watch this experiment play out. We like to think that more democracy means that they will elect people and eventually come around to our way of thinking. Uh, as, but, but actually, that's not the default position of humanity. Could it be that once China actually liberalizes more, that the default position becomes nationalism, expansive nationalism? Uh, it, it, it certainly could be. And there, therefore, again, the, uh, the wariness, you know, growing out of the experience of the Middle East, beginning with uh, or the larger Middle East, beginning with uh, Algeria, uh, the slogan was developed by those skeptical of democratic development to describe uh, elections in uh, heavily Muslim countries. One man, one vote, one time. Right. In other words, what the people choose is authoritarianism. What the people, what majorities choose is to circumscribe rights, not to increase rights. This is uh, a real policy, a real possibility confirmed by the history of the Middle East, for sure. Yeah. Well, as Erdogan said, I think, or somebody else, democracy is like a bus. You drive it to the stop where you want, and then you get off, unless, of course, you're Sandra Bullock and you have to drive it at the speed of 55 or else it explodes. I think that's what, I think that's what Erdogan said. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you later down the road, especially if events uh, change in Burma. Peter, thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Well, an old Monty, Python, old Monty Python sketch. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Premise and Mrs. Conclusion are arguing about something. The guys are in drag and they're doing their old lady voices. And one of them finally blurts out at some point, Burma! And the other, after a pause, the other says, why did you say Burma? She said, I panicked. And I kept waiting for them to redo the sketch on stage and have one of them say Myanmar. Because who says yeah, Burma? Yeah. Who says Burma anymore? It's like saying Peking. It makes you feel like some old style guy who says, uh, "You know, I, I ain't cotton into these new ethnic names that they." I still, call I still them, so. say Peking just because I think it bugs people. It does, it does, and, and Myanmar for such a long time sounded like, um, you know, one of those names that they yeah. rebrand countries after they've had a top to bottom reordering of the society. It did not help that I think the uh, the government uh, was known by the Lovecraftian name of Slork. Slork, Remember? yeah, the State uh, Law and Law Order, Order Restoration, Restoration Committee. Committee. And, yeah. it's, and aren't we just patting ourselves in the back for knowing that? But isn't it great? Well, I, was, I traveled there during the the, the dark Slork days. <laughs> the dark um, it's it's yeah. like something out of Ghostbusters. Zool, it really know, is. Zool and knew I, how many Slorks were roasted in the yeah, depths of Myanmar in that day. It was an interesting place. And, and – and, um, it, it, it is interesting how a cohesive and relatively peaceful – and I think Peter is on to something. Uh, cultures matter and some cultures well, – let's just be honest. Some cultures are good and some cultures are bad and some cultures are, are – um, can, can move into the, into the modern world and some can't. And um, the ones that can't need to be um, adjusted and that's all there is to it. I love, I love the term adjusted here. I have a picture of Grady, the caretaker in Shining, talking to Jack Nicholson in the bathroom and say, these cultures were, were mis- misbehaving. And so I adjusted them and you know, took an ax to the whole batch because that's right. what people Actually, are going to hear, that you're, a, they, that, you're, that you're a cultural hegemonist who wishes to extirpate those who don't conform to our values. Listen, 
Uh, if yeah. our culture is well, bad, then they, 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 I plead guilty. If our culture is bad, it's our fault. If their cultures are bad, it's our fault. Pretty much <laughs> That's right, right, right. So we have the Middle East about to explode once more. ICE is still on the march here and there. A Tripoli falls to uh, bad guys. Fires pop up everywhere. The president golfs. And meanwhile, a lot of people are thinking that the big issue at the end of the summer is whether or not you have the right to move your yeah. chair back on the airline. And you could say first world problems, but I kind of hate that, especially when I'm on a plane, because it does matter. And actually, just because everything else is bad – and just because you know some people are upset that the ALS ice bucket challenge is taking away from real suffering in the world, I just sense of perspective. Put it all to one side, and let's now address this issue without apology. Are you a leaner backer, recliner, or not, Peter? Uh, my position is very simple. I have the right to recline. The person in front of me does not. <laughs> Talk about snork. No. <laughs> the, re- the, the reason the reason I travel with a little uh, what's the the MacBook you'd know this James the MacBook Air the small one is eleven inches yes okay so I travel with an eleven inch MacBook Air the smaller of the two not the thirteen inch because I have discovered that if I'm using a thirteen inch computer on my tray yeah. and the person in front of me leans back I can't use it anymore right. but the but the eleven inch no matter how far the person in front of me leans so the I have accommodated myself to this reality that in the seats in which I sit, which believe me are not first class or Rob Long's business class, <clears throat> but in the seats in which I sit, oh, people no. have the right people have the right to recline and I just have to live with it. Rob. Well, uh, I don't travel business. I'm a co I fly coach. Do you really? Absolutely. I'm so me? disappointed to hear Well, unless that. unless unless uh, someone else is paying, you know, ah, if, I'm doing, okay. if I'm doing ah, it on business. It right. okay. Well, no, no, rarely, but but you know, listen, when I'm traveling on the on business, if if it's a, if it's officially Hollywood business, the writer's guild requires first or you know, the best you could get in the plane, you know. Really? Um yeah, uh but I mostly I'm I'm in coach. I, I do economy plus on on United. Same and here. sometimes they bump me up automatically because I do that a lot. Fly them a lot. Sometimes they don't. I I be, and I fly the I take the window seat and so I do recline. I don't recline that much. I recline just enough so that to create if I need to to create a little gap between the window and the back of the seats where my head can be cradled there uh, and won't move around. Um, sometimes the the way the the seats are, I'm I can't. My it, my head will just flop around, so yeah, I do lean back a little bit, and I, I believe it's your right to 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 put your seat back, and it's the person's right in front to put their seat back. Um, I don't think it's your right to keep them from putting their seat back. I think you can ask politely. Uh, that little contraption, I think, is probably a mistake. Um, but I mean, uh, Josh Barrow had a good good piece in the New York Times yesterday where he suggested that listen, why don't we just make it a market? You know, you can pay the guy in front of you not to lean back. Mm-hmm. Make him an offer. I like that idea. Uh, I don't lean back. I usually have an aisle seat. And if I lean back, that means that they're going to wake me up when it's time to land. Even if, you're, even if you've reclined three-eighths yeah, of an inch. And I, and I generally don't. True. However, I, on the other hand, I'm a fairly wee lad, so I don't need the extra room. And I understand why people who are of NBA player proportions sometimes feel the need to put it back. What I hate is that when the guy behind me decides that he's going to get up and the only way that he can possibly yeah. leverage his bulk is to grab the back of my seat. And, That's and, right. And, right, and, right. And, which always wakes me up and always, always creates 
Well, it doesn't create a stir at all because you don't want the plane to be diverted. But really, please, honestly. Okay, my, the, my, my last pet peeve about flying is mm-hmm. I, I don't mind crying babies. I don't mind any of that stuff. I am un, unhinged at the noise that I hear from other people's headphones. Really? If that to me just it drives me crazy. I don't because I have noise-canceling headphones, which tend to yeah, put me my, my own little cocoon. One of the reasons I don't look, recline, though, is I think that I'm paying penance for something that I did many, many years ago on the, Am, on the Amtrak Express going from D.C. to New York. I'd leaned back. I'd lean back all the way. I confessed that I did. I was reading. And then at some point I decided, well, uh, we're pulling in maybe or I just I, I wanted to pull my seat back. And so I, I leaned forward in my seat. And I pushed the button that returned my seat to its upright position, not realizing that not only the fellow behind me, not only was his tray down, but on his tray was a selection of beverages, foodstuffs. And so I dumped everything in his lap on the way to some business meeting. And he probably didn't get the job or or close the Johnson contract. So I I feel guilty about that sort of kind of – well, I remember it. So there's that. Anything else here in the world we should discuss before we let go? I have to get to the state fair. No, you got to get to the state fair. Let's 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 get you to the fair. Yeah, I, I yesterday we had a live broadcast where I learned how to break dance, which was an awful lot of fun. Pictures uh, sure didn't happen. Uh, it did happen, as a matter of fact. I tweeted out about it, and uh, I, some people were asking whether or not some sort of intervention was necessary. That you know, it wasn't so bad that people wanted to throw me down and put a tongue depressor in my mouth so I didn't bite myself, but uh, it was fun. <laughs> And then today's video up at StarTribune.com concerns the Fine Arts Building. And I know that people laugh and scoff the idea that us hicks up here, let alone that a state fair, can have anything like fine art. But it's really not only extraordinarily diverse, but the talent and the subject matter, realism, actual realism in these paintings won the awards. And beautiful pictures, exquisitely rendered of farm scenes of winter and the rest of it. Uh, if you want to really be a, uh, a controversial artist this day, in this day and age, paint something people recognize. That's, 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 <laughs> that's the up-and-coming thing. Well, what you won't be doing is, of course, painting the inside of the porcelain bowl in your sink with blood because you won't cut yourself if you go to Harry's. It's only the finest blade you can get from the finest price. And Harry's shave, well, you know, they got to deal with Ricochet. If you enter that coupon code, you're going to get a five bucks off your first shipment. Harrys.com. Also at EncounterBooks.com, 15% off any title. And we advise you to look at how David turned into Goliath, a look at how Israel got demonized even more. And uh, one last note. Yeah. Well, from- we should say, I, I was going to say that uh, you no longer have to hear me uh, do what I do, asking you to be for a member. And this here's one member to, uh, to say why. Yes, I just want to say my favorite things about Ricochet are the podcasts and the meetups. And for goodness sakes, uh, tell Rob Long not to stop uh, his sales pitch on the podcast. It's kind of a kick hearing someone from Hollywood beg for money. See you later. <laughs> Which is amazing because that's all we do in Hollywood, but okay. <laughs> That's right. And Rob, Rob will be posting the, the phone number again so you can make your passive-aggressive little commentary on everything that we do here um, if you just call in. because And, and uh, I'd like to say next week we're going to have more membership testimonials and pitches, but we won't because we're going to be off next week as a sort of attenuated Labor Day thing. Hey, we got rights too here. We haven't unionized yet, but uh, we're, we're banded together. We got placards that say unfair. And we'll only deploy those in case the, you know, 
thousands and thousands of people listen to this and nobody ponies up. So pony up and have yourself a great weekend. And uh, thanks to our guest, Rob, Peter, and we'll see you all at Ricochet 2.0. See you in a few weeks, fellas. Join the conversation.